Bible teacher Ann Graham Lotz. And make time to get alone with God. There's no substitute for time spent alone with God, not if you want to receive His Word. Welcome to Living in the Light with Bible teacher Ann Graham Lotz in the book of Joel, chapter 1, in part 2 of Ann's message on God's harbingers, His warnings. And her challenge to you today is for you to cry out to God on behalf of our nation. What better time than in this season of unrest and turmoil in which we find our nation and our world? Here's Anne. Joel says these harbingers will come as a series of disasters, and they're not sequential. They can all happen at the same time, which is what I think is happening, which makes them so incredibly unsettling and maybe unique to this generation. But the first one, environmental disasters, and that is the locust plague in verse 4. And the locust plague just came in. The locusts came in and ate everything progressively, you know, through all the stages of the locust, until nothing was left. And it was an environmental disaster. The environmental disasters are getting worse and worse and worse. And don't pretend that they're not. Harbingers. Warnings. And social disasters. Verse 5, wake up you drunkards and weep. Substance abuse, drugs, alcoholism is an epidemic in the United States. Alcohol-related accidents are the leading cause of death in young people. That's a disaster. And drug abuse, whether it's prescription drugs or heroin or cocaine, that's a disaster. The social disasters, the environmental disasters, financial disaster. Verse 5, wine will be snatched from your lips. And in Joel's day, wine wasn't a luxury, it was a staple. So what he's saying is things that you need, your everyday necessities, in one moment are going to be taken from you. And we might not understand that until the last few years, when we've had major institutions collapse, major banks that collapse, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and all of that. And just like that, people lost their pensions, their 401ks, their retirements. And it's going to be worldwide. And I believe it's going to be worse. It's, that's just, those were harbingers of how bad it's going to get. So what financial disaster do you see on the horizon? Wall Street Journal said that they're predicting a financial crash. Financial disaster. That's a harbinger. National disaster. In verses 6 and 7, a nation has invaded. And he's referring to the locusts coming in. But then I got to thinking that he was saying that the locusts were like a nation invading his land. And so it was an invasion of a non-human army. So then I thought, well, what is a non-human army that's invading America right now? What's an inhuman army that's invading our nation? Pornography. And Fifty Shades of Grey. If you have read that book, if you've gone to see that movie, I hope your face is Fifty Shades of Red. Don't go near it. (laughs) It glamorizes. It makes entertainment, sexual violence, and abuse of women. Where are the women's rights? Where are the women's lip people? Where are the feminists? Rise up and say, don't do that. It's pornography. And every time I turn you know, my, my website, my homepage, when I go online, is a news service. And on the news service, with all the news items, are little thumbnail things of pictures that I think if I was a young person, I wonder if I would click, and they just suck you into pictures that, in my mind, used to be in Playboy and some of those other magazines that were behind the counter and... And now they're right there on the homepage of a news service. And you know why? Because pornography is big business. Did you know that pornography makes more in one year than Microsoft, Apple, Google, eBay, Amazon, and 
There's one more, Yahoo. All of them put together. Apple, Google, Yahoo, eBay, Microsoft, Amazon, all of them combined. It's just like a seeping poison, isn't it? And it's not just ruining the young people. And I'm here to tell you, if there's somebody here that's involved in that, listen to me. You bring it to the cross. Bring it to the cross and nail it there. You crucify that. You think it's just harmless. You think you can get power. That it's destroying your spirit. And it has repercussions for eternity. Stop it. That's a disaster. National disaster. I think the worst invading non-human army is unbelief. Secularism, humanism, agnosticism, atheism that's just crept into the United States of America, one nation under God, in God we trust. That's a national disaster. And there might be others you can think of. Spiritual disaster. In verse 9, the grain offering and drink offering are cut off, which meant that the sacrifices ceased because there was nothing to sacrifice. So the priests mourned. And when they could no longer sacrifice, they couldn't go to the temple, they couldn't worship, they had no ceremony, sacrifices, and they felt cut off from God. They felt God had abandoned them. And when disasters strike, isn't that one of the first reactions of people? God, where are you? I remember right after 9-11, and CBS Morning News called and asked for an interview, and so I talked with Jane Clayson, and that's the question she asked me. Anne, where was God on 9-11? <laughs> and I said, Jane... We've been telling God for years to get out. You know, get out of our business, get out of our government, get out of our schools, get out of our marketplace. And God, who is a gentleman, he doesn't force himself on us. He backs off with tears streaming down his face, if I can describe him that way, but weeping. And he just removes his hand from our lives. And he allows us to be subjected to those things that otherwise he would have protected us from. That's the judgment of Romans 1. It's not fire and brimstone coming from heaven. It's just God backs away. And we can feel it. And if people would say, oh, God, I'm so sorry. Oh, God, we run to you. We cling to you. We repent of our sin. We want you back into our national life. We want you back into our schools. We want you back into our businesses. God, please forgive us. Come back. We can't live without you. We can't function without you. We can't handle ISIS without you. Please come back. God would come back. You draw near to him, he will draw near to you. But you know what we do? We say, well, where was God on 9-11? So he didn't show up. So you know what? God doesn't care about me. Then I'm not going to care about him. And that's a spiritual disaster. And it leads to all this atheism, agnosticism, humanism, secret people looking for answers somewhere else. And a lot of it's just that pride and rebellion of the human spirit. Anyway, they don't want to come under his authority. That's a spiritual disaster. And it leads to an emotional disaster. Verse 8, mourn like a virgin, grieving for her husband. You know what that would be? That would be inconsolable grief. And verse 12, the joy of the people is withered away. And I thought about that. You know, we've just seen the mark of the disappearance of the Malaysian Flight 370. And all those people disappeared. And so they showed the families still grieving. They have no closure. They're inconsolable in their grief. And I think, what if it was a whole nation that was inconsolable in their grief? 
And listen to me. That flight, 370, was a Boeing 777. That was a harbinger. And God was warning the world. There's coming a day when you're going to see not 200 and whatever people disappear. You're going to see millions of people disappear. And they're going to be your family members and your friends and your neighbors and your spouses and your parents and your children. And just like that, in a twinkling of an eye, they're going to be caught up to be with the Lord and America will collapse. Think about it. That will be judgment for America. And there are other parts of the world that will collapse. Africa, South America, Asia. Joel Rosenberg pointed out to me, I think it was the first time we had a conversation, Europe would be untouched. Just about. Isn't that interesting? And Israel. But we can feel already the agitation of spirit, can't we? And the oppression. I do. But for a person who doesn't know Jesus, doesn't have the assurance that if somebody took off their head, they're going to instantly be with Jesus, with their Heavenly Father. If they're looking for satisfaction and fulfillment and meaning in the possession of their things, their position, their power, their prestige, their reputation, their food, their drink, where they travel, and and when it's cut off and it's snatched away, the joy will be withered and they'll grieve like a bride for her bridegroom. Agricultural disaster. Verse 10, the fields are ruined, the ground is dried up, the grain is destroyed. Despair, you farmers. We've all seen pictures of fields that look like sun-baked clods and, or fields that are underwater, orchards that are frozen. I heard somewhere recently, and I didn't see the item twice, so either it snatched away or it wasn't true, but anyway, that mad cow disease is somewhere in the United States. And all it takes is something like that sweeping through our herds or something going through our flocks. And I mean, America, it's unthinkable, but that we could experience famine, agricultural disaster. So environmental, financial, national, religious, emotional, agricultural harbingers. And Joel is saying that God is behind these disasters. That they didn't just happen. It's not just a freak of nature. It's not just the polar vortex. It's God is trying to wake us up to get our attention. So we need to stop pretending and look up. Give him our attention. The warnings are credible because it's God's word. They're clear. Harbinger after harbinger after harbinger. And I think they're very compelling. God is merciful. Yes, he is. And God is loving. Yes, he is. And God is gracious. Yes, he is. And God is kind. Yes, he is. And God is merciful. Yes, he is. But God is also just. And he's holy. And he's righteous. And there's coming a point that he says, my patience has run out. Genesis 6 says, my spirit will not always strive with man. And God's spirit strives with man by restraining evil so life can go on. But there's coming a time when he says, I'm not going to do that anymore. You've told me to get out. I'm backing away. I'll no longer strive. I'll no longer restrain the evil. And that's when you have catastrophe. That's when you have calamity. That's when you have everything falling apart. And verse 16 says, it's done right before our very eyes. But I want to tell you something, that the harbingers, warnings convey hope. Think about it. Why couldn't God just just do it? <laughs> just destroy us. Just judge us. He warns us. Why? 
because he's wanting us to repent. There's still time to turn this thing around. God would be relieved if he didn't have to bring judgments. And so when he warns us, it's always because there's time to cry out to him that he might stay his hand of judgment. And so I believe these warnings, the harbingers, compel us to cry out, first of all, with necessity or humility. Verse 13, dress in sackcloth. Sackcloth is just outwardly dressing in such a way that you're showing inwardly you're desperate for God. Oh God, if you don't get us out of this mess, we're not going to get out. If you don't heal our land, we're not going to be healed. If you don't solve the problem with ISIS, it's not going to be solved. If you don't bring the races together, they're not going to come together. USA Today had a whole thing about how you can heal Ferguson. They're talking about this and this psychiatrist and this talking about that. You know they just need Jesus. They need the cross. They need the gospel. And it's the last thing they'll bring in. Oh, God, we're desperate. I think that's why we haven't had revival. We're not desperate enough. What's it going to take? I remember Henry Blackaby saying, if 9-11 doesn't wake you up and make you desperate, what will it take? So we cry out with humility, necessity. We cry out with sincerity. Verse 14, you fast. Church programs, seminars like this, conferences, National Day of Prayer, they're important, but they're no substitute for praying ourselves, turning away from everything in order to turn to God in prayer. If prayer is turning to God, fasting is turning away from everything so you can do that. When do you fast? What is fasting? Fasting is going without anything and everything. So you can make the time to get along with God and pray. You go without food, go without eating, exercising, talking, telephoning, emailing, business, ministry, housework. You name it, you stop it. And you get along with God. And you pray. Have you ever fasted? And I understand if you can't fast from food. So there's some of us that can't fast from food. But you can fast from everything else and make time to get alone with God. There's no substitute for time spent alone with God, not if you want to receive his word, have it internalized. And when he brings it into your heart, there's comfort, peace, clarity, wisdom, discernment. You know what to do, and then you give it out to others, and you see lives changed, and you're making a difference at the end of human history. That's a privilege. So you cry out with sincerity, you fast. Jesus said in Matthew, when you fast, it's not an option. And we cry out with urgency. The day of the Lord, verse 15, the day of the Lord is near. I would just describe it as a day of reckoning and accountability. It's a day when God's patience runs out. And Joel the prophet was saying it was near because I'm assuming he was pointing towards a Babylonian invasion that would take away Judah or the Assyrian invasion that would take away the northern kingdom of Israel. So the day of the Lord was, in one sense, fulfilled in that way. And I know the greater, the ultimate fulfillment is going to be at the end of the tribulation period. But I also believe that maybe if we don't turn to God, he would allow judgment to fall on America. Is the day of the Lord a time of his judgment coming on our nation because of the way we keep shaking our little dust fists in his face? So we cry out with urgency. And Joel says the day of the Lord is near, it's coming, and it's going to be ugly. And so in verse 19, this is the culmination of chapter 1, he says, verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call. 
and he turns to him in prayer. And, you know, I look through this chapter. <laughs> it doesn't tell us how to pray. It doesn't even say, Lord, forgive us. Lord, have mercy. Lord, you know, it just says to you, O Lord, I call. So I'm going to insert my own words. It's just help. God, have mercy. We call on you. Let's be clear about who we're calling on. We're calling on the God of creation, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. We're calling on the same God that the children of Israel called on when they were down in Egypt and they were oppressed by the bondage of the Egyptians and they cried out to God and God heard their cry and he sent them Moses to deliver them. And then they were there pinned with the Red Sea on one side, mountains on this side, and the desert on that side. And here comes Pharaoh's army, and they cried out to God. And he opened up the Red Sea, and they passed through on dry ground, and he collapsed it on Pharaoh's army, and God heard their cry. And we come to Joshua, and he's led the children of Israel out of the wilderness into the Promised Land, and there's Jericho straddling his path, and so he leads the children of Israel around Jericho every day, every day, every, for seven days. The seventh day, they go around it seven times. On the seventh time, they blow their trumpets and they cry out and the walls come down. And they take the enemy's stronghold. Gideon, down in the wine press, so is scared of the Midianites. He's terrified. And God said, Gideon, I want you to take these 300 men. You take jars. You put torches inside. You stand on the rims of the mountains around the Midianites. And at midnight, you break the jars and you hold up and you cry out. And when they did, the Midianites fled. And David facing the enemy giant Goliath. And it wasn't exactly a cry, but it was a battle cry, wasn't it? When little David ran out there and he said, you come at me with a sword and a spear and a javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord God of hosts, the Lord God of Israel. And he takes out his little slingshot and he fells the giant. Elijah cried out on Mount Carmel and the fire fell. And he cried out again and the rains came and ended the three-year drought. And Jonah, sorry, I think he's sort of a miserable prophet, but (laughs) (laughs) I can't think of a worse place to be than in the belly of a fish in the bottom of the ocean. But he cried out and God heard his cry and delivered him. And the Apostle Paul in a Philippian jail at midnight, he didn't just cry out, he sang out. (laughs) And an earthquake came and his chains fell off and God delivered him. And there I mention in that category, not in the same level, but our Lord Jesus Christ, hanging on the cross, crying out in a loud voice, it is finished, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he didn't just die because somebody took his life. He gave his life. He refused to take the next breath. He gave his life. He put his spirit in his father's hands. Three days later, his father raised him from the dead. Oh, listen to me. God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. You cry out to him, and he hears your cry. Joel Rosenberg's mentor, Dr. Koshi, had a phrase I have used and just loved that our God is a prayer-hearing, prayer-answering, miracle-working God. Cry out to him. He waits for us to cry out to him. Remember the disciples on the sea. And the storm came and he went as though to pass by. Have you ever wondered about that? He was waiting for them to cry out. And as soon as they did, he was in the boat with them. And the sea was calm. He's waiting for his people to cry out. He's the God of creation, the God of redemption, the God of salvation. He's the God of justice and mercy, forgiveness and grace, blessing upon blessing upon blessing. 
but he's waiting for you and me to cry out to him. Psalm 34, 17 says, The righteous cry out and the Lord hears them. He delivers them from all their troubles. God will deliver you. And I just wonder before I conclude, is there somebody here? You're in a day of the Lord. Have you had problem after problem after problem in your finances, in your health, in your family, in your business? Is God trying to get your attention? Has he brought you here for that purpose? Cry out to him. Get on your knees. Cry out to him. I'm not going to tell you how. We're not told how in this verse. Just, God, help me. I'm in a mess. Help me. And he may not help you just like that. But you've taken the first step to deliverance. You'll never know if he'll deliver you until you cry out. So cry out. Verse 19, to you, O Lord, I call. Fire has devoured the open pastures. Verse 20, fire has devoured the open pastures. And I read that and I thought I'd misread it. So I went back and he's, he's repeating himself. So is he just beginning to, you know, stutter? And I think, no, you know what? Until we cry out, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse. So nothing is going to solve this except God. The answer is not in politics, it's not in Washington, it's not in finances, it's not in education, it's not in treaties that come and go. Answer is in God's people who are called by God's name, humbling themselves, praying, seeking his face, and crying out to him. So that's my challenge. Would you cry out on behalf of our nation? Would you cry out on behalf of the United States of America? It's time to wake up. God has sent us harbingers for that purpose. And the harbingers are credible because it's God's word. And they're clear, one after another, disaster after disaster. And they're compelling. They compel us to cry out to God. Would you do that? Now here's Anne with this final word. Let me just add these few thoughts to my message today. Psalm 32, 6 urges us, Therefore, let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. The psalmist implies there comes a time when God cannot be found, a time when God hides himself, a time that I believe may have begun in America. Our nation is in chaos. Why? Could it be because America is losing God's blessing, his favor? Could our sin be provoking his judgment? In the Old Testament, God moved in judgment on his own beloved nation of Judah, a 22-year process. God moved slowly, giving plenty of opportunity for Judah to repent of her sin, turn to him, and therefore escape the judgment. But with all of God's warnings, Judah became even more defiant, more disobedient, more wicked. She insisted on her right to immorality and idolatry. In the end, God sent in the Babylonians to destroy her. God warns a nation that judgment is coming. He doesn't want any to perish. But if a nation does not heed his warnings, he unleashes his anger and there is nothing, no one who can prevent it. If God would judge his own beloved nation of Judah, why would we think America could escape? God promises in Jeremiah 29, 13, you will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. There can be no casual, half-hearted turning to God. Not if we want him to return to us. God emphasizes this principle in Joel 2, verses 12 to 14. 
Even now, declares the Lord, return to me with all your heart, with fasting and weeping and mourning. Rend your heart and not your garments. Listen to me. Only God knows those who are rending their hearts as they seek Him. But I'm led to ask myself, how truly serious am I about seeking God on behalf of our nation? How serious are you? When was the last time I fasted and wept and mourned and confessed the sin of our nation as though it were my own? How about you? I believe the future of America hangs on the answer to that question. You've been listening to Living in the Light. And when you go to angramlots.org, there are free resources to help you in your study of God's Word. Anne's desire is that you embrace a God-filled life, step-by-step, choice-by-choice, living in the light.